0: Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. Every restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am Elle Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In.
1: Elle, what's up? we are so excited to be talking to you very soon robin you there we're on three-way right i'm here i'm here why isn't she picking up i told her we were going to be calling i know but we are so excited to be talking about our mcbride sister story you know it might get a little bit emotional we're going to tell you everything we're going to talk about our sister story we're going to talk about our business story and it should be fun but make sure that you get a glass of wine, okay? Cause you know, we're gonna have to like sip and chat and talk. And it's gonna be good though, we're excited.
0: Today, the McBride sisters are stepping into the walk-in with me. Robin and Andrea McBride are the founders of the largest black woman owned wine company in the male dominated wine industry. Which is amazing all on its own, but their story is seriously something out of the movies. The sisters grew up in different parts of the world. They didn't even know the other existed. After their father passed away, family members connected them and their bond was immediate. They discovered they shared more than genetics. They also shared a passion for wine. So they decided to follow their dreams together and found their own wine company. This story is incredible, so get ready. It's time to step into the walk-in. Andrea, Robin, welcome to the walk-in. The walk-in in in the culinary world is not just a place where food and Beverages are stored for customer use. It's also a place where people go to maybe let off a little steam, perhaps, maybe have a little celebratory moment. Sometimes it's just to have a conversation with someone that they really need to talk to about something very important. And the Walk in podcast is no different. You have such a unique story, almost the kind that I grew up watching movies about in the 80s, right? <laughs> like the twin <laughs> sisters who are separated the at birth trap. and parent mm-hmm. trap. Yeah right? On all the parent trap derivatives, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very cool story because it also speaks about genetic connectedness, right? Like no matter how far you are from your people, your person, you can always find each other. I think about that as a African-American person, you know, or a Black American person. I feel like even though I'm very American in my ways of like being raised and living and, and moving through this space of the earth... I always will feel a connectedness to the continent, you know, and there's an even deeper draw to that with wine and grapes and vineyards and all those sorts of things. So I'm excited to tap into that today. Um, The first segment of The Walk-In is called FIFO. Do you know what FIFO means? I sure do, because we have inventory, first in, first out. Yes, exactly. (laughs) There it is. Yes. FIFO, first in, first out. So it's no different with us. I want you to tell me about yourselves, and I'll let you all decide who goes first. But tell me about each of you growing up, who you were then, right? Little mm-hmm. Andrea, little Robin, right? And then we'll kind of move into meeting each other at age 16 and 25. Is that correct? That's right. So let's start there. And then after that, you can tell me what's going on with the McBride Sisters brand right now. Okay. Well, I'll start since I'm the
2: first sister. So I don't like to say I'm the oldest sister. I like to say I'm the first sister. (laughs) So little Robin grew up, born in Los Angeles, grew up in Monterey in California, which is a super small little coastal area somewhere between LA and San Francisco Bay Area, heavy in agriculture. Grew up as an only child with a single mother, no relationship with my father, and, you know, did the kind of kid things you do when you grow up in a small place and one that has a ton of agriculture. I spent time on the coast. I spent time wishing I had a sibling, tried to convince my mother. It never worked. She never had any more children or remarried, but also grew up kind of missing a piece of who I am because we're I'm biracial. We're both biracial. With My mother, who's Caucasian, but having a disconnect from not having my father in our lives and, you know, kind of feeling one isolated, but a little bit disconnected from who I knew that I was and being in an environment that was also supportive of that. That wasn't the environment that I grew up in. And then growing up there and then just kind of finding myself and moving on around in the world. I eventually moved to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Um, which is the point at which I found out that I had a sister somewhere in the world.
0: Oh, my goodness. After wanting to have a sibling for so many years, I can imagine you were probably like over the moon, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Definitely life-changing. Yeah. You know, always wanting to not feel that I was alone in this and and, Mm -hmm. and, in this world and, and who I am. And a child of my father who I didn't know, finding out that there was another person that shared... That space, in a sense, with me out there somewhere in the world was definitely life-changing. Knowing that you're not alone changes your outlook on everything.
0: I can imagine. I'm an only child of a single mom also, and I begged yeah. for siblings. I also did not have my request granted.
2: Um, mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: however, at some point, I was just like, well, it's just me. I'll just I'll figure it out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's right. So little Andrea, Also born in Los Angeles, moved to New Zealand to a town at the top of the South Island of New Zealand called Mm Blenheim, where my mother uh, and my mother's family is from, is within the region called Marlborough, which is the largest grape growing region now in New Zealand. And when I got to New Zealand, shortly thereafter, my mother passed away from breast cancer and Lost uh, contact with our father. And so little Andrea was growing up in a tiny little town <laughs> where at the time there were, I went from metropolitan LA to a little country town where there were like two television stations that, you know, wow. turned off at like <laughs> 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> there was like a butcher and a main kind of supermarket, and one place where you kind of bought everything for your home, including your clothes and your couch. And, you know, really, really like small, small town. And like Monterey, maritime influence, Rana Island, Mm -hmm. a lot of agriculture, and definitely not a diverse place. Uh, You know, there are not people of African descent uh, in New Zealand. We have the indigenous people to New Zealand that are called the Maori people. Mm -hmm. We also have people from uh, the Pacifica of Samoa, Tonga, Niue, Cook Islands. But at that time in New Zealand, especially in the South Island, there was not a lot of that diversity either. Mm-hmm. So uh, little Andrea was angry with the world. Mm. <laughs> you know, a little bit mad, trying to kind of figure out uh, my identity, um, dealing with mother passing away and being d- disconnected from our father And then shortly after, my mother passed away, splitting time between my mother's brother and a foster family. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if I'm being real, I'm keeping it 100. (laughs) Oh, we're
2: being (laughs) real today.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: We were two mad little girls in beautiful places. I know. (laughs) I
3: know.
0: Even in that pain, it's serendipitous because your coming together would probably... That would, there would be some influence, you know, on how you all would come together in the future, you know, healing in those respective ways. A different ages, obviously, but I'm sure that it would be impactful in the future. But all the beautiful things I've seen and uh, heard about New Zealand, I can't imagine being a child. And being, you know, in such an emotional place that you actually can't even really deeply enjoy your surroundings. You're being so internal at that time, and being young and alone. How did you navigate that? I think, like you know, most uh, textbooks would describe.
1: <laughs> you know, you you're you're mad and you're angry and getting in all types of acting trouble. out trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And then I think too, at a young age, um, regardless of. If it's like, you know, air quotations, an ideal childhood or not, when you grow up in these beautiful um, locations like Monterey, New Zealand, that's all you know. Yeah. So you really take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And so even though I think we're kind of both dealing with our own things, subconsciously, it was really, it, it really is a large part of who we are. Yeah. You know? yeah. And when we got older, being able to kind of reflect on that and really appreciate that
0: is yeah. Yeah.
1: something that we both have. For me, like I couldn't wait Mm -hmm. to leave the place that I
2: grew (laughs) up. I think that's everybody, right? At some point, you're like... <laughs> a lot of people have that, but it was like, that was my, you know, mission number one. My goal number one was to get the hell out of this place mm-hmm. at any cost. And I didn't care all that much about where it was, except that I had a fateful trip to Atlanta yes, early on. And I think within the first time of visiting Atlanta, within two months, I had moved there and I made
0: it home. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was like, this is it. This is the spot for me. Tell me about at the age at which you all started getting into the agricultural part of vineyards and uh, Andre, I know you, you did work on vineyards when you were younger. Like where did that kind of fit into who you were becoming as a result of like pain or grief? You know, was that a part of that or was that just like expected? Yeah, well,
1: I think like, you know, kids in any agriculture family, you know, community is kind of just a part of your life. And so, you know, you do it begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but definitely, you know, grew up in this period of time in New Zealand when that part of New Zealand wasn't yet really known like it is today in the mm-hmm. world for making wine. And so it was going through this interesting shift of where Marlborough and Blenheim were, you know, predominantly orchards and a whole bunch of different like agriculture. Mm-hmm. To where then you start to have different families, you know, who are humble farmers planting the Sauvignon Blanc grape from scratch. Basically, you know, transitioning their paddocks or their fields from peas and potatoes to running wires, putting in posts, mm. you know, bench crafting plants, putting them in the ground and really starting vineyards from scratch. And so being a part of that process, you know, like when I think about it back then, like I can't give you an honest sort of answer if it was specific to Mm -hmm. healing um, necessarily for me at that age to me it was just kind of like that was life and it was work and you know but I think for me as a kid what was really my avenue for kind of dealing with a lot of that was sport and I just happened to be you know good at at athletics and that was kind of my way of kind of like venting a lot of anger and and feeling good about Mm -hmm. myself and you know achieving the way that I when Robin and I first met, it was such a big, like, emotional, so momentous moment that, like, I knew that I wanted to be back and close to her. And for me, in order to make that happen, for me to get back to the United States, my vehicle was, you know, through athletic scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so, like, right after we met, you know, like, I made the decision, like, I was already on a on a track of representing New Zealand at a really young age for athletics and doing really well. But that moment of us meeting like solidified for me like I'm coming back to the United States so I can be close to her and and the way for me to be able to do that financially and just yeah. in general <laughs> is by getting a scholarship.
0: Okay, this is where the story in my imagination gets really really good. <laughs> so, how did the connection happen? Who sent the letter? Who reached out to whom? What propelled that? I know your, your dad passing away and his desire was for you to connect. How did that initiation, that conversation happen?
1: Yeah. So I got to New Zealand in 1999. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I lost contact with our dad. And then it was 1995, just came home from school, was at my foster family's house. And the phone rang. I was close to it. I picked it up. And heard this voice on the phone and didn't, it was like hella bassy and but couldn't like pick the accent. And then I just heard Andrea, it's your daddy. And I was like, Whoa. Oh my God. Like super like flawed. And then I just remember being like incredibly emotional and you know, kind of like feeling like somebody like mm-hmm. punched you in the stomach, you know. When and you, like, did you? Words can't come yeah. out, you can't speak. Yeah and then in the in the conversation him you know telling me that he also too was terminal with cancer and but the silver lining in this conversation was that uh, i had an mm-hmm. older sister and her name was Robin McBride and that his family uh, my family was trying to find her and our dad is the youngest of 12 and so they they really took it upon themselves as older siblings to really try and help kind of figure it out and it started with uh, watching an Oprah episode randomly she featured private detectives on how you find people that owe you money yeah I remember that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they just they just thought these little tips and tricks that these private investigators had could be used to mm-hmm. find anybody that was like the starting place and then from there they bought books and anywhere they could get a match to Robin's name and an address they would hand write letters out and that started in 95 and then in 99. Just as Robin moved to Atlanta, she got this letter in the mail from her aunt. Mm-hmm. Robin, you were hard to track down. <laughs> I guess I was. <laughs> I didn't know.
2: I had just moved to Atlanta, but the letter actually came to my mom's in mm-hmm. Monterey. So she let me know, hey, you've got this letter here and the return address is McBride in Alabama. Do You want me to open that? And I was like, uh, yeah, please do because... <laughs> You know, what what's going on here? Yeah. And so she told me, you know, what it said. It was from our aunts, from Annie Mae, and just kind of laid it all out in writing that, you know, your dad has, you know, passed away. He died in ninety-six. And you have a sister and her name is Andrea, and she lives in New Zealand. You know, please call us. And it's kind
0: of a lot of information to get all at once. <laughs> I can imagine. I'm over here tearing up just like, like, yeah. whoa, that's a high and a low in a, in a moment.
2: Yeah, it's a lot. Right. And, you know, as I imagine, at least for me, probably any little girl that's, you know, growing up without a father in her life you know, regardless of how you rationalize it, there's some dream that says one day I'm going to, you know, meet and get to know my father yeah, and he's going to love me and I'm going to have a relationship. But, you know, all of the things that you felt like you're missing when you're growing up. So right away that was cut down and I just had to quickly accept, okay, I'm, I'm not going to get to know this person. Yeah, There won't be a relationship there. But again, you know, silver lining says that I have a sibling, which I also always wanted a sister. And I've got to reach out to them and find out where this girl is and why she's in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because <laughs> I couldn't think through, I'm like, did he move? Did he travel to New Zealand? Like, was it for work? Like, what, you know, right. what, like, are what the circumstances where I would have a sister that's living in New Zealand? And then the other part too was like, you know, you just don't know. You get something random like that. I'm like, is this a scam? Yeah. Does somebody want money? Is it actually his family? Is he even deceased? Like, you know, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. So I kind of had to just take the risk and say, well, you know, if there's a chance that I have a little sister, which like I said, is just something that I wanted more than anything, then I, I need to contact these folks and find out what's going on here. Right. So I did. I called the number that we was called, a, Annie <laughs> I called Annie May. I called Annie Mae in Alabama to say that she was excited uh, would be an understatement. She just immediately went full, like church, Holy Ghost, (laughs) you know, uh, all of it, all at once. She was very excited. And she said, here, talk to your sister. And I was fairly confused. Because according to the letter, my sister lived in, in New Zealand. In New Zealand, right, right. Yeah, and, and I was in Atlanta, and I was calling Alabama, which is right next door, and she's talking about talking to your sister. So I was like, okay, these people have, you know, they have games. They've they're <laughs> got some shenanigans going on. You know, as it turns out, as, as God would have it, Andrea was visiting our dad's family in uh, Alabama at the time that I was notified
0: that I even had a sister, Andrea, what were you doing in Alabama? What did, how did that even, what are the odds of this, this timing? Good grief. It's giving me chills.
1: Yeah. So
0: like one of our dad's brothers, our uncle
1: Sam, uh, he didn't have any children of his own. And so when our father passed away, he really took it upon himself to make sure that he would always be there for for Mm. us. Mm -hmm. And when our father passed away, he had gotten back in contact with me But he hadn't, we hadn't yet found Robin. And so, you know, just going through, obviously, our dad passing, you know, after shortly thereafter, just reconnecting with him was like incredibly emotional and traumatic. And so he really stepped in to kind of just be that like father figure. So like I would call him like all hours of the night from New Zealand and I would just, you know, talk to him about the world and he would talk to me about the world back and talk to me about my dreams. And he was just Mm -hmm. there. To listen uh, and to support. And then so when our dad passed away in 96, they just, you know, wanted to be able to, like, phone calls are great. But now I have this, like, whole family, you know, and that is, like, the... the A big one. The, 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 yeah. And that, and <laughs> also, too, as Robin mentioned, in terms of being biracial, you know, I'm also bicultural. Mm-hmm. You know, New Zealand culture is very different from American Culture, let alone Black culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was really important to our dad's family that I have a connection and peace, like with our culture. And so they organized for me to come out for the the Christmas holiday, kind of end of the year, New Year Mm -hmm. period. And it was just coincidence. (sighs) I I was just visiting for that period of time when Robin got the letter and picked up the phone. So, you know, I was. In Montgomery, to see family in Montgomery, then in and then Camden at our aunt's house, and then going to New York, because we have family that's in in Harlem and in Washington mm-hmm. Heights. So I was just kind of on the, the leg of the Alabama <laughs> tour. The McBride yes.
0: Awards
3: tour. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> you know, and then that's when it happened. I was sitting in the living room, and keep in mind, like, you know, I haven't spent much time with this family, and again, you know, we want to talk about, like, culture <gasps> in America, yeah. and then like Black culture and then Southern Black culture, everything is all brand new. And I'm just like soaking it in because I'm just like, ah, oh, like, you know, yes. these are my people, this is where I'm from. And then, and then you know, our auntie to, to have sort of like the Holy Ghost moment.
0: Aha, uh-huh. so Aunt Annie Mae catches the Holy Ghost yeah. while you're in the other room absorbing <laughs> America. <Yeah. laughs>
1: you know, I'm just like, whoa, you know, mm-hmm. what is going on? But then for her just to be like, it's your sister on the phone, like talk to your sister. And just remember just being like so excited and <laughs> just thinking in my mind, like, let me tell her everything like right now. Because I didn't know like if we were going to be mm-hmm. able to meet. So I'm just like talking a <laughs> fast. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, she's really, really quiet. She really doesn't say much. <laughs> And at the time, you know, I'd spent most of my life in New Zealand. So I had a really, really strong New Zealand accent. And later Robin told me, she's like, I had no idea what you were saying. She's like, I was just like, uh-huh. Uh, okay. Uh-huh, yeah, Yeah, sure. I was yeah. like, uh. <laughs> and then the next day I was scheduled on a flight from Montgomery to go to New York. And then, so thank God, you know, Robin was like, okay, cool. I'll meet you in New York. Next day, like jumped on a plane and... I got there before she did. And of course it was like storming and crazy. So like flights were like yes. delayed forever. And I remember just like sitting and just waiting for hours and just like stomach and knots.
0: Yeah. And, and no cell phone for texting. Like, are you yeah. okay? You just had to Mm-mm. wait it out. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. You just had to stand there and wait to
2: see what happens. <laughs> and I'm circling in the air. We couldn't land. I was like, this is the longest day
0: of my entire life. Okay. All right. So, Robin, you're in the airplane. The storm is happening. You know that you're going to meet your 16 year old sister in an airport. What are you thinking at this moment? What is going through your head?
2: Well, quite honestly, part of me is still scared because, like, I still am not a thousand percent sure that there's not like a team of scammers <laughs> waiting for me at the uh-huh. airport. Because it's just such a weird scenario, right? But I'm like, I have to take the chance that this is what's laid out Mm -hmm. for me. This is me connecting with my family and that piece that I just know has been missing my whole life. So I'm up there and then we have all these winter storms, which is like ice storms and and stuff. They kept closing their runways and all this kind of nonsense. So it was just taking forever. We're like flying over New York for like four hours. And like the longer it's taking, the more I'm starting to think this is a bad idea. (laughs) I don't even know what I'm like flying into right now and at this point i'm fully terrified mm-hmm. but i don't know what type of people they are i don't i have no idea what i'm walking into i don't know if it's going to be a good outcome or a bad outcome so by the time that we land and i'm walking off of the the airplane my soul knows that this is a life-changing moment so it's like am i going to meet this moment and be open and ready for the possibilities of what's about to happen you right. know or not Right. So I'm having this conversation with myself. I'm walking off of the plane. I'm walking off of the jetway. And I'm really just kind of doing all these different self affirmations to ready myself and to be open to whatever is about to happen. And I see I'm looking down the jetway thinking I'm seeing my mm-hmm. reflection down at the end of the jetway in a, a mirror, because I don't even know who I'm looking for. But I think that I'm, I'm seeing myself walking and realizing that what I think is a reflection isn't moving at all as I'm walking and that it's my sister waiting for me at the end of the jetway and, you know, not knowing even who to look for, um, what to expect. If we look like sisters, if we resemble each other, you know, all, all at one moment, it's like in less than a split second, I feel like my identity, my everything changed when I laid eyes on my sister and, you know, I'm no longer sort of alone in this detached reality that I've been living in my whole life. Mm -hmm. And that I have this partner who I have a bond with on site. You know, people always ask us what, you know, what did you guys, what was it like? What did you guys say to each other? And it's like, we didn't say anything, right? Because like, what words are there for that kind of moment? Like, what words do you have for that moment that like, suddenly, like, makes you whole and completes you and answers all of those questions that you've, that you've always had. Like, there, are, that's not a moment that has any words.
0: Nuku makes high-quality cookware and bakeware for home chefs. And the products are so good, even their own employees can't get enough. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products, raving about her four-quart stock pot. The one piece that I really love is our four-quart stock pot. It's perfect for so many things, soups, pastas, sauces, and it's not too big and it's not too small. When I make my holiday cream pies, this gives me perfect results every single time. For perfect cream pies and more, grab your own Nuku. Nuku Cookware and Bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit Nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for a 35% savings off their stockpots. That's nucu.com promo code KITCHEN. Henry David Thoreau once said, What is the use of a house if you haven't got a tolerable planet to put it on? And that's the kind of social character that room and board brings to every product they offer. Natural materials are an important part of their furniture design, so they respect the materials and always source them responsibly. It's nice to have a beautiful dining room table, right? But a dining room table that is beautiful and sustainably sourced? That's great. For more info, design inspiration, and helpful advice, go to roomandboard.com. Samuel Adams founder Jim Cook has always felt indebted to the restaurant industry. They gave him a shot way before Samuel Adams' Boston Lager became a household name.
3: Restaurants have been my customers since I first started, and I never forgot all of the people who kind of adopted me back when we were nothing. They put in our beer when they didn't need to. And I always promised myself that someday I was going to find an opportunity to pay that back.
0: When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Jim got his chance to pay them back. Together with the Greg Hill Foundation, Samuel Adams quickly created the Restaurant Strong Fund and raised millions of dollars for the workers who needed it the most. For more information, visit restaurant. Okay, so you have met. I know that there's this age gap, and I know this probably kind of sounds like a silly question, but... Were you talking about wine soon thereafter? Like, when did the the conversation started? Because I'm sure you had like a host of like parallel conversations. If you all can manage to end up talking to each other on a phone call from a random visit and a random letter all in the same day, I can imagine that it's not where the parallel activity ends. But when did the conversation about wine start to happen in your relationship? Or even business, entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I think it was kind of after the like moment of first meeting and then getting back to my like, our cousin's apartment and then, um, you know, bless their hearts, they were like so excited. Of course, like you can imagine everybody's just like, it's so unreal, right? You yeah. Know? And then people, you know, we were kind of sitting in our cousin's apartment on his couch and her couch and you know, they're just, like, staring at us. And, like, we like we haven't really had a moment privately, you know, to talk about all these big questions about both of our lives and these sort of gaps and things. And so we're in Manhattan, right, and I'm, like, 16, you know. So, And I'm already, like, I'm in New York, right? And I was like, this yes. is just so dope. <laughs> and then so Robin says to, like, our family, like, you know, Andrea and I just want to go out by ourselves, just spend some time together and go get some coffee. And I remember we ended up going to this like bar. And I remember just like, <laughs> I, I was like, remember in my mind, I was like, I am in Manhattan with my sister in a bar. I was like, no one in New Zealand is yeah. ever going to believe this. Right? <laughs> this is the story
0: I've been waiting for. <laughs> I, so I know. I know it's a big deal.
1: But that first conversation, just us by ourselves, was what was it like where you grew up, Mm -hmm. you know? And then we were kind of been able to kind of piece together, you know, we both had grown up in these small towns um, and our agriculture and wine growing regions. And then that was just kind of, that was, that was definitely the beginning of it, but there was no, like, let's start a wine company. I mean, that was, that was just not, you know, on the radar. And then it wasn't until I had all these opportunities for scholarship um, to come back to the United States for university. And basically, Robin had just moved back from Atlanta to California. And I was like, okay, so I guess I'm going to school in California. <laughs> you know, because that was, you know, that was it. Like, I wanted yeah. to be, like, close to her. And I ended up going to the University of Southern California, mm-hmm. USC in Los Angeles. And then so I was back in L.A. And then basically it was like, that's really where, as women— we got to know each other, you know, and build our sisterhood. And it was Robin coming down to LA, me driving up to Monterey or us meeting in between, which is central coast, California, wine growing country. And, you know, a lot of the times, you know, we would just, just be driving and talking and kind of like what we, what we joke around about is like driving and dreaming, you know, cause we'd just be like talking about, you know, what we want to do. Like, what if we did this? What if we did that? You know? And, really getting to know each other as like young women and like kind of naturally and organically just filling in these gaps and learning about each other you know just through small things like you know you're driving and you see something that gives you kicks you a memory from when you're like you know younger and then like sharing that with her because she wasn't there yeah you know and so it's like you know we're just getting to know each other you know, in real time, but also, like, through our memories, just by spending time with each other with kind of, like, the day-to-day things that were going on. And, and that time of spending time with each other, as we began to build trust, then shared with each other that we had dreams that we didn't know how we were going to do it, but, like, we wanted to be winemakers and own a winery. And I think at that time, the advantage that we had, you know, versus have we been born a couple of generations earlier is that the internet really democratized information uh, in a lot of industries where before it would have been closed off, you wouldn't have been able to learn or get access because um, it's intergenerational knowledge that's kept in a you know a small industry or community. Now, you know, the internet changed a lot of that. So we were able to, you know, as fast as our Google fingers would type, you know, we were just trying to get as much information as we could on
0: like the realities of it. So at any point in building this dream as an idea, like at any point, did you ever think like, oh, that's a good idea, but I don't think we could really do it. Like, do you think we could really do it? Never. We've never
2: thought that in our lives. Not for one second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just the way that we can. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess we're going to credit that with your old dad because that's some, you know, the person that we have in common. Mm-hmm. But we are about as confident. And uh, it's a combination of confidence, optimism, and naivete. Sometimes we don't even know what it is that we're getting ourselves into. But we know that there's a way to figure it out and to become successful. And so we both have that same Gene, we both have that in our DNA. That's just, even if we wanted to, we could never break that out of like our structure. Um, And so that's what we started with. We're like, sounds like a good idea to me. Sounds like a good idea to you. Um,
1: Let's figure it out and make it happen. And then, you know, our passion is wine. And so it's like our haunting passion. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, we love to study and learn and A lot of times, you know, winemakers are super hyper-focused on, you know, their region where they are by necessity, you know, because your skill requires you to have that hyper-focus. But again, like with the internet, we were just able to kind of just learn so much, you know, that when we kind of get into these business situations, you know, we're not going to apologize for it, but it's like, it's unapologetic tenacity that just comes from like this passion and this drive and are really in our purpose. Mm -hmm you know, because, you know, when we started, it was very, very clear and evident, you know, after a short period of time that there weren't a lot of women, there weren't a lot of women of color. And we felt like that was like a really, really big group of people that want to enjoy wine and want to be on this wine journey, you know, and have all these amazing Epicurean experiences. And so for us, it was just this unapologetic tenacity. And, you know, we have this Our motto for McBride Sisters Collection is break the rules, drink the wine, you know, because we're a new world wine company. We don't have like the old world in France. We don't have this aristocracy. We don't have these traditions. We don't have these laws that we have to follow, you know. And so we're going to cut our own path and do it, you know, the way that we see it and how we see it is through, you know, our rosé colored lenses,
0: if you will, as women and, and black women, women of color. You know. Absolutely. I mean, and it seems like that's just, you know, like you said, Robin, that's the cloth that you're cut from. Like it takes that type of tenacity for a family to work collectively over an amount of time to connect to sisters on different sides of the globe to come together, like to believe in the purpose of that and to watch that purpose come to fruition in the embodiment of this Empire that you all have built together. It's an amazing story.
3: The Wall Slide.
0: This is a part of the podcast that we call The Wall Slide. And The Wall Slide, in this case, may or may not have anything to do with building the brand. It might be another part in your life, but I'm curious about maybe a moment or an experience or a series of experiences while you were building the brand that maybe for one moment made you question if you should move forward. Like obviously you're women, you're black, you're in a a genre of work that is you rarely ever see people who look like you in it. I'm sure you had some type of resistance put in, you know, somewhere in that journey, but did anything happen during the time of building up till today, maybe even, that for one moment had you thinking, maybe we shouldn't do this or Maybe we need to figure out our own way of paving this path. I think
1: you know, and, and let me be clear by saying this: with all this unapologetic tenacity and like break the rules, drink the wine. Every single step and day of our journey has been met with mm. constant challenges, grinding, and making tough decisions. I think that's just a part of being an entrepreneur. Is you you figure out how to be a yeah. really good problem solver, um, and I think you know for. A lot of people within the Black community, one of the things I think that holds true is uh, because a lot of us are, you know, grew up in tough situations, innately, there's a lot of problem solving going on. So I feel like we are primed Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be entrepreneurs just by training a lot of the time. Sure. And I think if I'm able to kind of encompass all of it, because there are so many to choose from. And up until pre-COVID, we would still deal with on a regular basis that is like crazy and and will blow your mind. But I think it's, you absolutely are challenged because you're a woman, absolutely are challenged because you're a woman of color and you're absolutely questioned as to how and why and where and Mm -hmm. how could you possibly do this? And all of these things that a lot of people maybe take for granted in a professional setting because- what they know is they just show up and they get to talk about their company, their brand, their product, what they do. They don't get questioned mm-hmm. as to their yes. relevance in the space and how they were able to put together what they're presenting. Yeah, and why they deserve to be there in the first place. And so a lot of the first part of our career, I would say, you know, we've been in the business now 15 years. At least 12, 13 years of that was spending a lot of time in our workday strategizing Mm. (laughs) around all of this bias that was going to come towards us in these different meetings, whether it be with retailers or distributors or whoever, how we were going to navigate around these questions. Because thematically, it's always the same thing that comes up. So how could we create a proof point or a story or a comment that would immediately kill that in its tracks and then naturally flip us into talking about the business at hand and
0: why we're there. That is exactly it, because it sounds like you're in the room. In order to have the conversation that leads to sales and revenue and product placement, first, you have to create this whole intro spiel, which is like your Wonder Woman shield bracelets to like ping, 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 all of that off. And do that before any questions can even, re- like, right. I already know. I know, I know. I know what you're about to say. Let me let me just knock that out for you so we can get straight to the business. Yeah.
2: So it was really interesting because when we started, we started importing other people's wines from New Zealand and then selling them into restaurants and stores and stuff in California, self-distributing into California. So we have the benefit of understanding mm-hmm how it should happen to a sense, because we had winemakers from New Zealand that would come over. We had other salespeople that were involved where we would make the meetings. We Mm -hmm. would take the meetings with them. We would see how the interactions happened, right? And then flip it over to we're bottling our own. We own it. It's our label. We own the company. We own the wine. Now we're outselling it. Well, now all of a sudden those meetings and those conversations take a completely different tone. So Andrea and I were like, well, what's up with that? Like right. we, we know how it normally works. We spent two or three years in this space while we're assisting those winemakers and farmers and vineyard owners and all of this from New Zealand, like sell their wines in California. But when it's us, when it's our own, all of a sudden the conversations change and the the questions changed and the need To legitimize ourselves as the company owners and the brands owners, it changed. And again, it comes back to sort of our optimism and how we're naive in a sense because we think we know that the wines are amazing. You know, that's all that's needed, right? But so we weren't really ready for this other piece of it, where we have to Mm -hmm. answer to who are you? Why do you get to be in this space? How do you own a wine company? Did you plant these vines yourself? Like all of these questions. And we're just here to talk about the wine, just like every other person who we had been in this space with before. But we have this whole additional other line of questions. And it was like, well, did someone in the family like give it to you? Who's the real owner? You know, who financed this? Who is your business? partner? Like just all of this. And so we're like, okay. So we took a step back, like we don't have, A, we don't have time for this. Like we're actually trying to sell some wine and we're actually trying to make some placements. So we sort of curated a short sort of answer to address all of these questions before they came. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we know every time we go in, we get barraged with these same questions. So we kind of crafted this condensed story to be able to answer those before they asked us so that then we could get to the normal business of selling wine. But interestingly, what happened from that was that it sort of started to evolve into Andrea and I's backstory and who we were kind of became almost, I don't want to say more interesting, but came at least as interesting as the wine itself. So we never had any intention of. Robin and Andrea being like a brand or being part of the story of the wines. Like that was never our intention, but people were so curious as to like, what in the hell were we doing in this space? How did we get here? What's going on? That it started to sort of overshadow it. So we had to learn to Mm
3: -hmm.
2: sort of give people the thing that we knew that was distracting in a sense um, as to who are these two women in this space so that we could kind of move on. But in tandem, as our business grew, our story Um, as the founders and as the company, you know, owners and as the brand creators kind of grew along with it. So we had to amongst, you know, between she and I kind of become more comfortable with being more at the front of the brand and having our backstory be a part of our business when that wasn't our intention initially. We just wanted to make really great wines and we wanted to get it to the people that we knew would love them and who had, uh, you know, up to that point not been communicated to. In a respectful way to learn
0: about these wines. Yeah, I understand that it is challenging to be both the brand ambassador and the brand owner, you know, founder, creator. Like, it, it, and yeah. it's difficult to create a divide because t- giving your narrative is also giving a lot of your personal self. Yeah. At what cost, right? Is this narrative important enough to sell, so to speak, you know, to get our product out there? You know, so I that I'm sure that was a really tough decision to make.
2: Yeah, it's a complicated space to be in because I feel like also it can be looked at as being, you know, gimmicky yeah. or we're trying to sell our story. But like that's not where at all where yeah. we come from. It's just that we can't avoid who we are in this space. Right. And so we have to be comfortable with telling our story and how we got here. Yeah. It's not necessarily our choice or being used as a gimmick in order, in order to sell the wines.
1: I'll give you a real story. So we're one of the larger, you know, wine companies in the United States. And we were uh, in Texas uh, and we were having what's called a top to top meeting. So it's usually it's the ownership of wineries and their senior executives of, you know, the distributor that you're working with. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty formal at that level. You know, everybody's suited and booted. Mm -hmm. And so we were (laughs) chit-chatting, getting ready to go into this conference room to have a meeting and the place that we were standing and just talking with these executives was also used for presentations and tastings of new products. And there was kind of like a bar behind us and glasses and stuff. And so as we're standing there, it's Robin and myself. And then we have, at a time, a gentleman that worked for us. And then all of their executive team, which were men. And then another woman that w- worked for us, who uh, is not a woman of color. And this guy appears out from behind the bar and walks up to Robin and I and asks us if... Walks we- through a crowd of people to find... <laughs> and asks us if we know how to use the dishwasher. And that when the meeting is done, can we please make sure to get all the glasses, put them in the dishwasher, and make sure that it's, like, run.
0: I almost slapped <laughs> this laptop off of my desk right now. That just pissed me <laughs> off.
1: And And the crazy thing about that situation is, like, we are the Black woman in the wine industry. So with every inch of our soul right now, you know, our blood is boiling. We want to curse people out. We want to, you know, remind yeah. them, like, pardon my French, who the f*** we are. And But in that moment, like, if we did that, yeah. then we're the angry Black woman, Yeah, you know? And meeting all that bias and that stereotypes that they already had about us, sure. like when we walked into the building, would reaffirm for them that situation, and then just make it so much tougher for all of our sisters that are, you know, coming up in the business as well. Everybody else. But that's just the reality of the industry that we work in because there's not a lot of people that look like us and we need so many more. And and not just just because, it's because we're just the biggest believers that when it comes to innovation and making things better, you need diversity of thought and you get diversity Mm -hmm. of thought from people that have different experiences, they have different cultures, you're able to add so much value versus people that Mm -hmm. come from the same culture, the same gender, you know, have been doing the same thing for year after year after year. Decades. Yeah, as the community is diversifying around you, like you're just doing a disservice if your goal is to create the perfect wine experience for people.
0: I'm a food stylist. And I remember being on a set and prepping my station for the day, getting the food ready. And this guy who was on the production team, he may have been the director. He was some top tier dude. And he kept asking me what was for breakfast. And I'm in my head, I'm in my workspace. So my first answer was like, I don't know, I have no idea what's for breakfast. You know, After the third time, I was like, the second time it hit me, what was happening. But the third time he asked was when I finally had to just like let him know, like, sir, I am the food stylist. Crafty will be here soon. I can't. That's not my job. That's not yeah, what I'm I not do. Yeah, I'm not here to you know? serve yeah. you. I'm not here to serve you. Yeah. yeah, you know. And I think that that really speaks to the experience that most mm-hmm. women of color have when we're in spaces where there's lack of representation of us. A Moment in the Walk-in. So this is a part of the podcast that we like to call A Moment in the Walk-in. This is where one of our listeners writes a letter asking for advice, sometimes personal, sometimes professional from our guests and we have a letter for you today. Are you Oh. Ladies ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Let's okay, do it. <laughs> okay, so this letter is from Shamir. She says, "Dear McBride Sisters, I am looking to grow my business and I want to make sure that I am growing a steady business. Could you talk about the importance of not taking money or funding from Mm. the wrong partners and ways in which that you can change the direction of your business from bad to good, good to better?
1: Yeah. So this is a topic that comes up a lot. And I think the place that you need to start from first is what do you define as steady growth? Because I think ultimately, when you're looking to take cash investment or injection into your business, it's usually and should be for the purpose of growing your business faster than sort of the current rate and trajectory that you're at. And so you really need to start with what is your goal for your business? Is your, bus- is your goal to build a business that is going to be sustainable, that's going to be here for multiple generations? Or is your goal to grow this business really quickly and then potentially sell it to somebody else for a lot of money and create intergenerational wealth that way? <laughs> you know, so you really have to start with, you know, what are your goals for your business? Because those two tracks are very, very different when you think about the strategies for sustainability, long-term, mid-term, and short-term for your business. And then I think then once you kind of have defined what path you want to take. I think if it's something that you want to have for long term, you have to understand as soon as you take a dollar from somebody as an investment mm-hmm. into your company, they're going to want a return on their capital. Right. They're not just giving it to you because they're a nice person, right? And that might be in the form of dividends, you know, each year on the profitability of your company. And also they could be the type of investor that says, I don't want dividends every year. I'm just focused on, you know, being able to sell this company for a lot of money in five, seven, 10 years, and I'll get my return on capital when that happens. And so I think, I think that's really important to know from the entrepreneur standpoint that you need to understand the Mm -hmm. profile of investor potentially that you'd be taking money from. That's really, really critically important. And that you have conversations around the expectation of what type of return do they want on their money that's invested in your company? Because, you know, if they put that money into the stock market, maybe they might see a 6% or 7% return on their money. If they were to you know, put it in a savings account, they get X from a savings account. And so I think a lot of times people get really excited about, by the idea of getting the investment and focusing on the investment and not thinking through all the way, why is this investor investing in me and what do they want in return for their capital?
2: And then also keeping in mind that with that information, understanding that not all money is good money as it pertains to your business, right? Mm -hmm. But also keeping in mind that any investor arrangement is a relationship and so just like any other relationship, you would need to ha- make sure that it's aligned and that there is a good partnership and that it's transparent and that there's a good understanding and that there's some level of relationship that's going to be maintained.
1: Yeah. And I think for the, the first example for your listener, if they're not wanting to take on money, but they are wanting to grow their business in a sustainable way, uh, we are definitely big advocates of strategic partnership.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, yes.
1: And looking at other companies that might have the scale and the infrastructure that you don't have, that you, you feel like is a stepping stone for you to grow in your business, what they don't have is maybe mm-hmm. the creativity, the connection with the customer, the product design, and maybe there's a way yeah. there where you guys can partner to where you're able to bring something to the table for them to make them sustainable and, and keep them in the game and vice versa. And that's a way where you can grow sustainably without having to give up equity for your company, because there is a a balance there in terms of what you're both bringing to the table Sure. to, to grow together.
0: All right, Shamir. So they covered a lot for you just now. They talked about knowing your why, what having a steady business actually means, knowing what investment actually means for your business, knowing what investors would expect from you within that relationship, and then also having a good relationship with your investor. And finally, but most importantly, being open-minded to exploring other ways to study your business, such as strategic partnerships. Well, it's been really a pleasure talking to you both today. You have sent me through all the range of emotions that a person could possibly have. Well, Al, thank you so
1: much for having us. We're honored and humbled and really appreciate talking with you and and telling our story. And I think if we could leave your community and your your listeners with one thing, I think it would be in their own lives to carve out and take up Mm -hmm. space and break the rules. Drink the
0: wine. And drink drink the the wine. wine. (laughs) Cheers. 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 To learn more about the McBride collections, visit their website at McBrideSisters.com. Hope you get to try their delicious Black Girl Magic wine and check out their McBride Sisters Facebook group for free access to their online wine school. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at walk-in at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's walk-in at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like the walk-in, And you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world? Please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show.
3: The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, Elle Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Han Margolis. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Caroline Rickard, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strahan is our intern. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, New Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen.
0: If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.